This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Hi, podcast listeners. This is the last week we'll be running a survey from our advertising team. We want to make sure the ads on the show actually match our audience interests, and we can't do that unless you tell us about yourself. So please, this is your last chance to visit sciencemag.org slash podcast survey and click a few boxes for us. I've been through the survey. It's quick, painless, and there's even a chance to win a gift card. So go to sciencemag.org slash podcast survey and tell us a little bit about yourself. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 25th, 2019. I'm Sarah Kresge. On this week's show, Helen Phillips joins me to discuss a worldwide earthworm survey. I talk with Ziad Obermeyer about finding bias in an algorithm used for millions of health decisions. And in this month's book segment, Kiki Sanford talks with Alice Gorman, author of the book, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe, Archaeology and the Future. A few weeks ago, we ran a story about the declining population of birds in the United States compared to the 1970s. But data sets like these are rare for animals, you know, even charismatic ones that people tend to, to gravitate towards. And for worms, those toilers in the earth, we just have not had anything approaching what we know about birds. Helen Phillips and colleagues did publish a world survey of worms in science this week. And Helen is here to give us the lowdown on the worms. Hi, Helen. Hi. I hope that's enough worm puns for you. That was a good number. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so tell us about this worm survey. What inspired your team to take this on? For me personally, uh, my background in my PhD has been doing something relatively similar, getting data from researchers across the globe in order to do large scales analyses. And one of the things I realized, um, as well as other people realizing this, that this was very biased towards above ground organisms. Mm -hmm. And below ground, the organisms are just as important for things that we rely upon. Working with Erin and Nico, the supervisors of this project, we decided to focus on earthworms 
because we realized that for soil biodiversity, there would probably be the most data already available. Mm -hmm. So actually what we ended up doing was contacting researchers across the globe and asking them for the data that they've been collecting. What constitutes an earthworm? I've seen some that look like red wigglers and some that are night crawlers. Those are all very basic understanding. But, you know, what do you count as an earthworm? So earthworms are a class that belong to the annelid phylum. Annelids themselves can occur in a variety of different environments, marine, freshwater, and the soil. But earthworms are particular to the soil environment. Okay. And the diversity within earthworms is quite extreme. So we can get very, very small earthworms and very large and just lots of different colors as well. Very cool. What about earthworms is important for the globe, for the ecosystems that they live inside of? So many things. So one of the things that I really like to push is how much they contribute to crop productivity. Hmm. The more earthworms that you have in the soil, quite often you'll find that your crop yield increases, but they also involve with the climate regulation, for example, decomposition, so removal of the litter layer into the soil, as well as a number of other things. You mentioned that this is a synthesis of a bunch of different research. Can you talk about how many places on earth were included in this survey? In total, we had just under 7,000 different sites across the globe. So a site is where a researcher went and did sampling for an earthworm. And of course, one researcher may have sampled two sites. One researcher may have sampled 150 sites within their little region. And these were quite spread out across the globe, but also still somewhat biased towards Europe. We know a lot about the European earthworm communities slightly less within the tropical realm. How many kinds of worms were included? In total, we could um, have species names for just under 200 different types of earthworm species. To put that into context, there's around 6,000 estimated number of species of earthworms. It's a lot of worms. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of worms. But they actually think there's more than that. What kind of patterns of diversity did you see when you looked at different latitudes in the tropics, some colder climates? Typically for above-ground organisms, we would expect there to be more species locally within the tropical regions. But we weren't actually expecting that with the earthworms because of the way that they're interacting with the environment and with the climate in particular. So we did expect that the tropical regions would have less species locally than the temperate regions, which is exactly what we found. Why is that the expected relationship? Because the earthworms are so dependent on the environment in which they live, in particular, for example, the soil being moist, not being too hot, we wouldn't actually expect as many species locally within the tropical region. What does it mean to talk about the local versus the regional worms? So our model and our data was based on site level measures of the earthworm community. Mm -hmm. And this showed that in the tropical regions, the diversity of earthworms was lower than in the temperate regions. But one of the things that became clear from our data is that just because the site level is lower doesn't mean that the tropics as a whole has less species. Oh. Yeah. So when you sample one place in the tropical region and then maybe move 10, 20, 100 kilometers away and sample again, you might find a completely different community of earthworm species. Whereas in the temperate regions, they're more likely to be similar to each other. Huh. You didn't start out you know, your career with a focus on earthworms. Were you surprised by some of the worms that ended up being included in the study? Was there anything, um, that many outliers out there? Yeah, I was actually really surprised by many things. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so for me, coming from the UK, an earthworm is 
you know, quite small, pink. And I was talking to all these earthworm researchers who go and sample in various regions in Brazil. And, you know, they're telling me that earthworms can be a meter long <laughs> and they could be all of these crazy colors. And they're showing me photos and videos. Oh, and wow. it, was, it was pretty mind blowing just yeah. seeing the diversity out there. And then in terms of like the actual data itself, just the sheer number of individuals that these researchers can find when they just dig, you know, a half meter by half meter pit into the ground, you know, the hundreds of individuals wow. in that, in, in those particular spots. Was all of this data collected by digging? Are there earthworm sensors or any kind of way of scanning for them? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> no sensors or scanners yet. So yeah, most of the techniques involve at least a little bit of digging. Usually around 30 centimeters of the soil is, can be removed. And for some of the methodology, they would also put mustard, liquid mustard powder onto the, the soil, which irritates the earthworms and causes them to come to the surface. Oh, wow. Considering that you had so many sites in all these different countries, you know, 7,000 sites, what, 57 countries, how much of the earth do we now know about? Like what percentage of the earth can we say we know about the earthworms? So I don't want to put a particular number on that. Because of the bias towards the more temperate regions for our sites, I would say there's still huge amounts of the tropics right. in particular that we just know so little about. So we can't just say, oh, well, on average, earthwide, there's about this many earthworms under your feet. On average, based on our models, if you were to pick a random point on the globe, we would find roughly 2.4 species. But there's huge variations across the different regions. You mentioned this connection between the tropics and the amount of worms and, you know, more cooler latitudes. Is that something that might change with climate change? We might see movement of worm populations. Absolutely. When we were looking at these models, one of the things we wanted to know was which of these environmental variables, which group of these environmental variables are the most important for creating these patterns. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that it was the variables related to climate that were driving the patterns in the richness as well as in the abundance. Mm -hmm. And so it means that if the climate changes, then these patterns will change. This was a massive collaboration. You weren't able to go to all these sites yourself. How did it work to coordinate with so many people? It worked with some difficulty, yeah. but also it worked perfectly. So we were contacting earthworm, um, earthworm researchers from the start of this project, asking them for their data and asking them if they wanted to collaborate with us on this huge undertaking. And when we started, we knew we would get data from at least some of them, mm -hmm. but actually the response that we got was just incredible. We got so much more data than we were ever anticipating. And the enthusiasm of all the different researchers was really overwhelming and just so amazing. Are you going to continue this work, continue collecting the data, doing these kinds of analyses? I hope so. That's the plan. Yeah. So obviously these earthworm researchers are always out there doing their sampling. And so we hope we can continue getting data from them in the future. Mm -hmm. Is there any plan to make a database of earthworms? Yeah, absolutely. So the data that was used for this paper is being made open access with the paper itself. And then in the future, we do hope that we'll have a database for earthworm data, but also for other soil biodiversity data. All right, Helen, thank you so much. Thank you. Helen Phillips is a postdoctoral fellow at the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity Research and the Institute of Biology at Leipzig University. You can find a link to her paper and a related perspective at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Ziad Obermeyer about detecting bias in a healthcare algorithm. 
This week's episode is sponsored in part by Simon & Schuster, publishers of The Tangled Tree, a radical new history of life by prize-winning science and nature writer David Quammen. The Tangled Tree chronicles pioneering scientists Carl Woese, Lynn Margulis, and Satumo Watanabe, whose discoveries in molecular biology, horizontal gene transfer, DNA sequencing, and immunology have dramatically changed our understanding of evolution and the history of life. Listeners of science can visit simonandschuster.com, add the Tangled Tree paperback edition to their shopping cart, and use the code SCIENCE at checkout to receive 20% off the book. Offer ends November 15th. The Tangled Tree is available wherever books are sold. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by Mel Science. Mel Science is a chemistry subscription service that sends you monthly experiments to do with kids. It's a great way to engage children in science early, educate them in a joyful manner, and get them to conduct real scientific experiments with their own hands. Mel Science makes an amazing gift for the important children in your life, be it your nieces, nephews, your own kids, grandkids, neighbors, students that you just happen to know. In the first box, every subscriber gets a free starter kit with all the necessary equipment, including a free virtual reality headset to use for the VR lessons. There are over 30 chemistry topics and experiments like assembling a functioning battery, growing crystals, and launching a mini rocket. Ready to get started? It's easy. Get 25% off, plus a free starter kit, a free virtual reality headset, and free shipping when you text PODCAST to 64000. Text PODCAST to 64000 to get this special offer from Mel Science. You support the show when you support our sponsors. So text PODCAST to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. This Week in Science, Ziad Obermeyer and colleagues write about dissecting out bias in an algorithm that's been used for health decisions for millions of people. Hi, Ziad. Hi, Sarah. Tell us about this algorithm. What is it used for? So this algorithm is used by health systems to identify people who are going to get sick sometime in the future, specifically in the next year. The highest risk people are enrolled or at least considered for enrollment in a program that gives them access to extra help. So for example, a particular team of nurses to help them to do home visits, to renew their prescriptions, to get them an extra primary care slot. Why did you think that there was something wrong with it, that there might be bias in this system? Uh, Well, actually, we didn't. Uh, So we (laughs) got a hold of these data for a completely different project. But along the way, we noticed that there were these fairly stark differences in the risk scores that Black patients and white patients had when those Black and white patients were at very similar levels of actual health. Huh. You saw that their risk scores were different, but their health records said they should be more the same. Yeah, it was even more perverse than that because we were seeing that bias in exactly the kinds of things that you'd want the algorithm to predict. So for example, if you take two patients at the same risk score and then just look at next year's health by a variety of different metrics, on average, Black patients at the same risk score ended up more sick than white patients at that same score. Oh, okay. How many people were likely impacted by this bias? 
It's a little hard to get exact numbers because the algorithm isn't actually making the decision on its own. Mm -hmm. So the algorithm is used for screening. If you total up the number of people that were screened by this algorithm and a whole family of very similar algorithms that are used in health systems across the country, you're easily in the tens to hundreds of millions of patients. This is a U.S.-based system. Is this something that other countries' health systems use? It's an approach that many, many healthcare systems are using around the world. The mechanics of the algorithm, those look very similar, whether it's in the U.S. or abroad. So you said you noticed this bias just looking at risk scores and health records. But I kind of want to go back a little further and talk about how you got these data. It's actually a really hard thing to do because health systems tend to use proprietary algorithms. They protect the data and the algorithm pretty well. So how did you end up getting access to this? Yeah, it's a great question because I think if you look at debate about bias and algorithms in health, but also I think even more strikingly in other social areas like law enforcement, um, hiring, things like that. I think the general perception is that it is really hard to get a hold of these algorithms because the largely private actors that make them don't want researchers poking around and discovering things that are wrong with them. In our experience, at least in this project, we found that to be wrong. If you're doing a research project with IRB approval that stands to benefit the health system's operations or the patients that they serve, it's actually quite easy to work with a health system and get access to these kinds of data, including the algorithmic predictions. We should mention that IRB is a... Yeah, the Institutional Review Board, sorry, uh, which is the internal body at many organizations, including health systems, but also universities, that is charged with the ethic uh, supervision of research. What did you do once you had those those things in hand? How did you take this apart and figure out what was going on? The first step was to try to figure out what we would like an algorithm to be doing in this setting to begin with. One of the core things that you might want an algorithm to do is to identify people who are going to get sick at equal rates, given the same risk score. And so that was the first indication that There was a problem with the actual predictions because whether we measured health by the number of active chronic conditions that flared up or whether we measured it with biomarkers of the severity of diabetes, on all of those measures, Black patients at the same risk score were less healthy than white patients. The first step was was documenting that fact. The second, I'd say, step 1B is trying to figure out are those differences big or small? Here's one way to gauge the magnitude of those differences. At a very high risk level, so in the top 2 to 3% of patients, those patients are kind of fast-tracked into the program. So the, about the top half of patients, except for these guys, they get their records shown to their primary care doctors. The primary care doctor thinks about it and, and makes a decision about whether they would be good candidates for this program based on a number of factors that we don't really see. These top 2 to 3% of people, they're automatically identified for the program. So they're kind of given special jumping that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if you take that top 3%, Above that threshold, there are a number of healthier white patients. And below that threshold, there are a number of sicker black patients. And so what you can do is is simulate a world where there wasn't that bias and just swap patients, 
black and white patients above and below the line until you get two patients, black and white, that are equally healthy. So basically, we've put all the sicker black patients into that fast track, and we've taken all the healthier white patients out until we have no more bias. If you did that, the fraction of black patients above the line in the fast track line would more than double. So the magnitude of that, of the effect of this disparity is actually quite large. The big question, of course, is why would the algorithm do this? Why would it de-emphasize the risk that Black people were at? Yeah. And I think that that's, if I had to say, what is the contribution of this paper? I'd say it's beyond just documenting another setting where algorithms can be biased. I think that the unique data set that we have, which is to say we have access not just to the algorithm, not just to how it was trained, but also this very rich set of contextual data on patients' health and their outcomes. That's what lets us do the what we call the dissection and figure out exactly what's going on. So here's the major problem is that we talked about what the algorithm is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be identifying people whose health is going to deteriorate so that they can be allocated into this helpful program. So far, so good. Now, how do you predict health deterioration? It's almost a kind of deep epistemological question, because to predict that, you need to first understand what is health and not just what is health, but how does some vague notion like health show up in my data set? And that's where the problems creep in, because what we find is that rather than predicting health, the algorithm in this case predicts a measure of health, but as translated into healthcare costs. So the algorithm is predicting the total amount of medical expenditures that a patient is going to generate next year as a proxy measure for their health. And then is it also looking at the amount that they, the cost that they had the year before? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's using a variety of predictors drawn from data from the year before. It's one of the, the cool things about machine learning. All of those predictors are aggregated and focused into a prediction on next year's cost. Well, why might it be that the fact that the cost became this proxy for health basically introduced a racial bias? Yeah, I think that's exactly the right way to ask the question. Why is it that cost is a biased proxy for health? The problem arises because the relationship between health and cost is actually quite different for white patients and black patients. So you can slightly turn the question on its head and say, at a given level of health, what's the difference in cost between a black patient and a white patient? And what we found is that at a given level of health, black patients generate significantly lower costs. Oh, wow. So the health system has spent less money on black people. Yeah, I I think that's that's right. And I think it brings up the interesting question of why. Why is that disparity there? And I think if you look broadly at the literature, there are two main channels by which that could work. The first channel is to the extent that on average, black patients are more socioeconomically disadvantaged. It's just harder to get access to healthcare when you are poor. So you need to get to your doctor's appointment. Transportation is uh, often expensive. You often need to take a day off of work. So you need to have a flexible job and a good relationship with your boss and a boss that cares about you. So to the extent that socioeconomic disadvantage is correlated with being black, which of course it is, you'll get a lot of those same channels affecting black patients' access to healthcare. 
There's also a second channel, which is something about the doctor-patient relationship mm-hmm. that affects Black patients differently. There's a lot of literature on this from, um, from a lot of different disciplines. I think one of the really compelling recent pieces of evidence to highlight is a randomized trial that was done by a doctor economist and her colleagues here in Oakland that took Black patients and randomly assigned them to a Black primary care doctor or a white primary care doctor. And at the end of their follow-up period, the Black patients actually had much higher uptake of primary care recommended interventions like vaccinations and screenings if their doctor was Black. That's really interesting. Are they looking into what might be causing this? Yeah, I think that that team of researchers is actually trying to get at exactly that by looking at doctors' notes and by trying to understand what's going on exactly in that doctor-patient relationship and how it differs by the primary Mm -hmm. care doctor's race. There's other research that looks at the care that Black patients got from the medical system before and after the revelations of the Tuskegee study. And there were just these profound effects of that revelation on Black patients' likelihood of getting medical care. We should mention that Tuskegee is, it was a government-funded study run by medical doctors that withheld treatment from Black patients for syphilis. Okay. Well, so you found this out. So can you fix it? Is it something that, that you can help tailor this algorithm to not focus on cost? Yeah, we we can fix it. And in fact, one of the things that made me really excited about this line of work is that we've actually started to move towards actually fixing it in collaboration with the company that makes the algorithm. We're always, as academics, very happy to have a paper, but I think it doesn't always feel very satisfying for the research to end with that paper. And so when we thought about what kind of change we wanted to produce in the world as a result of this research, we thought that it would be actually quite important to contact the company that makes the algorithm and at least let them know about what we found. And so that's what we did. We got in touch with the leadership at this company and they put us in touch with their technical team. And that technical team started replicating a number of the analyses that we'd done and found the same general pattern. And so we started experimenting with solutions together. It was really something that I think they did not know about. The choice of cost as a variable to predict was actually in many ways quite a reasonable one. It's hard to measure health. Healthcare costs are definitely statistically correlated with healthcare needs. It's just that nobody appreciated the degree of bias that that seemingly innocuous choice would produce. Do you think there are some lessons here for healthcare systems, for people who do this kind of work? Yeah, I think there's a concrete lesson, which is something that in a number of other fields, especially in criminal justice, people are more and more attuned to, which is that you really need to look at the outputs of the algorithm and hold them to certain standards of fairness. I think there are just some basic checks that you'd want to do to diagnose the extent of bias, if any, in the algorithms that you're using. And it's not technically hard, as in it's not a complicated statistical procedure to diagnose bias. It's a procedure that requires a lot of thoughtful consideration of what is in your data set and what isn't, and especially how these deep social 
structural inequalities that we have in our healthcare system and in our society more broadly can creep into those data elements. It's just a challenging task. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ziad. Thank you for having me. Ziad Obermeyer is a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Don't touch that dial. Up next is our book segment. This month, Kiki Sanford talks with Alice Gorman about the book, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe, Archaeology and the Future. Welcome to the book segment of the Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford, and this month I had the pleasure of speaking with Alice Gorman, Senior Lecturer at the School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences at Flinders University in Adelaide. In Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe, Archaeology and the Future, Dr. Gorman describes a journey of personal and scientific discovery that reminds readers how our actions today and what we leave behind will shape our spacefaring future. Dr. Gorman, thank you so much for joining me today. It is a pleasure. How did you become Dr. Space Junk? There was a particular moment um, about 12 years ago when I was working on a big Indigenous heritage project in Queensland, and I just had this moment of revelation. I was looking up at the sky and I thought, this is not just stars and planets, there are actual human artefacts up there. And immediately into my head popped this thought, can I do archaeology on these objects? And that was it. I was off on this completely different track. The answer to my question was that, yes, one can do archaeology on things that are in space. And I think in the intervening years, I think between the handful of us working in this field, we've managed to establish it as a credible subfield of archaeology. What point does something go from being current to being archaeologically interesting? I don't really see a difference between what's current and what's defunct or what's old in this sense. Like it's all material culture. And the difference between a satellite, for example, that is currently functioning and one that isn't, it's just in time. Something that we're looking at now as not archaeology next week could not be working. And you say, well, it is archaeology now, but that's kind of a totally arbitrary distinction. As an archaeologist working in the space industry, how do you perceive the stories that are being told about space? I suppose when you look at the stories that are told about space, they're often about success and they often represent the technological trajectories that are used to get there as the most efficient and logical ones. And we know that's not true. We know that any kind of technology has all kinds of false starts and different possibilities. What we end up with is only one thing amongst a whole range of possibilities. And so we narrow these down to the story that becomes the story that everybody tells each other. And the space world has some very particular stories that it likes to tell. One of these is the idea that there is an innate human urge to explore One that particularly interests me is the whole amateur satellite movement. And this has been around since the beginning of space. So I see this as a story parallel to the wealthy spacefaring nations and the big corporations, a story which is just people using often pretty ordinary objects and technologies to make their satellites. 
Early on in the book, you write that the archaeology of space is no luxury, but a necessity. Why do you think that? I think this is a way of connecting everyday regular people who aren't incredibly wealthy and can't build their own rocket or pay to go into space, so connecting them with their past in space because it's entangled in everyday lives in so many different ways. And I see the connections that heritage can make as something that gives people a stake in what happens in the future. So the archaeological side of it, the the part of of looking at what material culture tells us about everyday behaviour, for me, is a way of providing a different kind of voice to people who wouldn't think of themselves perhaps as a space person, who, who aren't aerospace engineers, but are still operating in this new, fast-changing world that we're currently living in. So, so that's why I think it's, it's important to make connections to space that are accessible for everyday people who still have a right to be engaged and involved in the new space world that we're entering. Can you talk a little bit about what heritage principles are? Like the, uh, in the book, you, you talk a bunch about the, the Borough Charter um, and how you have taken these principles to apply them to space archaeology. The def- basic definition of heritage is it's, it's something you inherit. It's that same word, stuff from the past that people in the present think is, it's important to keep for the future. We don't know what people in the future want, but unless we make some decisions right here, well, they won't have anything, you know, there there won't be anything. So the Borough Charter says the basis of making those decisions is working out how culturally significant something is. And to do that, you follow a process of identifying different kinds of significance. And these are historic. Apollo 11 is historically significant because it's the first time humans went to another world. There's uh, aesthetic significance. So you could say Tranquility Base has a very distinct aesthetics with the light and the shadows and the, the, the way the footprints look in the dust and all of that stuff. Uh, then there's social significance. This is what people feel. This is about how they're attached to a place. Scientific significance is basically research potential. So if this thing is destroyed, this place or this object, What are the questions we can no longer ask? And you have spiritual significance, which is about people's beliefs. The Borough Charter, it is Australian, but it's used all over the world. And it turns out it works perfectly on space subjects as well. Speaking of space subjects, where do zip ties fit in? (laughs) Some years back, I had the opportunity to do a survey of an old tracking station site, which is just outside Canberra. In 1985, it was destroyed, but it's now just concrete footprints of the buildings and the antennas. But it's on a beautiful flat valley, and the flatness of the valley meant it was perfect for doing a geophysical survey. What we found was that a lot of the cable trenches were still intact under the ground, and the cables were still in them. So I started thinking about cables as a really important part of space infrastructure. I mean, lots of other stuff as well, but these are for power, they're for data, they're connecting the antennas up to the computers, they're part of the whole thing that takes those signals from space and turns them into data that people can read and interpret and know what's going on. So 
I started to become really interested in cables. And then in my second field season at this site, cable ties started to pop up. And I was thinking, okay, so the cables are one thing, but the cable ties are also a critical piece of how this whole place functions. So this little object that nobody pays any attention to actually has this really interesting story and this interesting part to play in the development of 20th and 21st century technology. What other kinds of objects are turning quote-unquote junk into archaeological space gold? Well, there is actually something else I think is really interesting, and this is the Ziploc or Snaplock plastic bag. So the International Space Station transports food in Ziploc bags. A lot of the little kits to repair things on the International Space Station are put into sequences of Ziploc bags. So they're actually using these little plastic bags as what I call a gravity surrogate. They're using them to replace what we would expect gravity to do if we were in that situation. And they are also used in creative ways. So the astronaut Don Pettit used snap-up bags to grow little seedlings in. Sandy Magnus used a Ziploc bag as a mixing bowl when she was making a dinner one night. Are you looking at all of this from an archaeological perspective yet? I'm currently working on a project with my colleague Justin Walsh at Chapman University to do the archaeology of the International Space Station. So we're going to be looking at how, again, like cable ties, you know, you use them and then you dispose of them, they're rubbish, but huge quantities of them go up and back from the International Space Station. I'm interested in the the ways in which they're used that they're not intended for, like how they become incorporated into maybe systems of social meaning or how they become an object which migrates into different kinds of use that get repurposed and maybe get used over and over. Uh, So something I'm actually going to start looking for in the images is how worn the Ziploc bags become. And again, because they're so innocuous and you don't really pay much attention to them, no one's ever really looked at what that cycle of use is and and how it relates to the behaviour of the astronauts and how the astronauts adapt to that environment. So that's something I find really fascinating too. That's work yet to come. So sadly, I'm obsessed with cable ties and Ziploc bags. Do you have any dreams for the future of space archaeology as, uh, as a field? What I would like to see is that every mission that's planned or every sort of major program of missions would have a space archaeologist advising them as part of that. And that would be from the heritage management perspective, advising them what impacts their mission might have on already existing heritage sites in that part of orbit or on the surface of that planet and working out ways to to mitigate any impacts to the existing heritage site, but also perhaps planning. So I think that would be a really great outcome at the point where people in the space world are not thinking that heritage is just this quirky other thing that's out there that occasionally they pay attention to, but something they're actually building into their missions, recognising that humans have attachments to objects and places and there might actually be people interested in this in the future. So that would be a pretty great outcome, I reckon, jobs to space archaeologists. 
many times in your book, you really alluded to this idea of looking at the past in order to be able to see our future. Why is it important? It's so easy to think that human culture consists of what we see in the contemporary world, you know, late industrial economies, nuclear families, particular kinds of architectures, particular kinds of food production systems. But these are all fairly recent in human history. If we're going into space, these are going to be small populations initially. We've got a lot of archaeological evidence about how small populations manage to survive and thrive in challenging environmental conditions. It just seems obvious that it would be useful to see what we can learn from those that could be applied to space. And I suppose the other factor of that is um, how social structures are themselves structured by the physical environment and the constraints and the opportunities that those provide. So, yeah, but I guess basically I think we need a lot more archaeologists and anthropologists working in the space world. Do you have an overarching message that you hope people gain by reading your book? The most important thing I wanted to say in the book, which I hope comes across, is that if we connect to these stories of space that aren't just about rocket technology and fancy spacecraft, that it's possible for us to feel more part of space, both physically in terms of how we conceptualise our world and part of space in terms of how our everyday lives intersect with space technology. It's really important for people to hold on to the idea that space is the common heritage of humanity that everyone has a right to access space and that space is for peaceful purposes. Because I think that could change. We could see that change pretty quickly if we're not keeping an eye on it. Thank you for speaking with me. And thank you for joining me for this interview with Alice Gorman about her book, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford, and I hope that you'll join us again next month for a peek between the pages of another science book. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. A special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg for their suggestions and sharp ears. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.